Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, welcome back to the History Hit World Wars podcast. If it's your first time here, we are dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. I'm your host, James Rogers, and in this episode, I had the joy of interviewing Damien Lewis, the world expert on the SAS. When you interview someone like Damien, well, you don't know where to start because he knows everything about this topic. But we started with why the SAS was formed. Why was Churchill so keen to get this band of brothers off the ground? And then we jump into the topic of Damien's new book, which is called SAS Band of Brothers. We talk about Operation Gain, the tragic way in which it ended. And then the remarkable story of how a secret bunch of SAS were established to track down Nazis once the war had ended. So I know you're going to enjoy this podcast. If you want to follow along with our other episodes, then like, share, follow, subscribe, and also follow us on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2 and on Instagram at James Rogers History. But for now, here's Damien Lewis. Damien, thank you so much for coming on The World Wars. Great to be here. Now, you are, it's safe to say, the world expert on the SAS, especially the SAS during the Second World War. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to tell us a little bit about these bunch of highly trained heroes. When was the SAS formed? Why were they formed? And what sort of missions did they undertake? Yeah, well, it's a great question. So the roots really go back to Dunkirk. And immediately after Dunkirk, literally within 48 hours, there was a little appreciated figure from World War II called Brigadier Dudley Clark, who'd been brought up in South Africa. And he would go on to become famous, actually, for deception operations during the war. But at this stage, just after Dunkirk, he approaches Churchill via an intermediary with a back-of-an-envelope proposal to form the commandos. The commandos, based upon his experience of being besieged by the Boer commandos, in South Africa during the Boer War, which is where he was brought up as a child. And, of course, Churchill had wide experience of the Boer War. He was captured there by the Boer commandos. He escaped. He'd been there as a reporter and as a soldier. So this immediately resonated with Churchill. And not only did it resonate because he understood how 25, 50,000 Boer commandos had tied down about 300,000 British troops and run rings around them, basically. And, by the way, the Boer commandos were irregular bands of basically farming folk from South Africa, rode their own horses, carried their own hunting weapons, loosely organised bands of fast-moving troops, guerrilla fighters, really. 
Churchill had experienced their operations at first hand, hugely impressed by them. But also, at that darkest hour, he was painfully aware that we needed a means to strike back. And this is the crucial point. We didn't need a means to strike back at that moment, chiefly to defeat the enemy. We needed a means to strike back to show the British population and crucially our potential allies across the Atlantic that we had the will to fight. The will and the means and the spirit to fight because the general consensus from Hitler through to many of our would-be allies around the world was that Britain was down and out and it was all over bar the shouting. And you can understand why. Pretty much the whole of Western Europe had fallen and the British and French had been roundly defeated on the European continent. Now, Churchill was extremely perceptive in that understanding and he ordered Clark to form the commandos forthwith. And not only that, he said, I want the first raid back across the channel within the month. So by the end of June, you've got to get your newly formed commandos back across the channel to attack some German outpost somewhere. Which, bearing in mind, this was now the second week of June and Clark had no recruits, he had no equipment, he had no weaponry, and there was no model ever of this kind of unit ever having existed in the British military. That was quite a tall order, as you could imagine. It just so happened there was a unit of commando-like troops who had been formed to go to Norway to help in the very fast-moving battles for the defence of Norway. But they'd never been deployed because the battles there had moved too quickly. So they were sat in Scotland with nothing to do. And Clark headed up there, spoke to them, gave a presentation, and most stepped forward and were the first special duty volunteers or special service volunteers, because that's what they were officially called. Now, everybody was a volunteer. And when they were volunteering, they didn't know quite what they were volunteering for. That first operation was codenamed Operation Collar, and it involved 90 of these fledgling commandos getting in RAF crash boats, which are basically these small dinghies that you use to pull pilots out of the sea when they crash landed, somehow getting across the channel, raiding a German outpost, seizing prisoners and coming back. And actually, Clark went with them. He was banned from going ashore, but he went in the boats. They dodged the German e-boats. They dodged the German patrols. There were firefights. They caused some damage. And they got every man back alive. It was a insignificant pinprick in terms of the greater fortunes of the war. But in terms of the message it sent and the propaganda victory, it was huge. Headline news in all the newspapers the following day. And crucially, also in the American papers, the British bulldog finds its bark. So it really did what it was designed to do. It did what it said on the tin. It proved to the British nation that we had the will to fight back. So very, very, very perceptive and very clever strategy. However, there were some issues. And the main one was that Clark was called before the War Cabinet. And the War Cabinet said, basically, you can't in all conscience be thinking of calling this unit the commandos. And Clark said, why ever not? And the War Cabinet said, well, because the commandos denotes those ill-disciplined, ragtag Boer commandos, and the British Army has nothing to do with that kind of operation. And Clark said, but what would you have me call them? And the War Cabinet suggested, in all seriousness, that they should be called Special Service Troops, or SS for short. At which point, Clark pointed out that he may as well call them the Gestapo. And anyway, he had to go to Churchill and get Churchill to pull rank and get the commando name its blessing. And Churchill, again, massive foresight, had realised when he'd seen the first ever airborne operations 
not just of the war, but ever in the history of warfare, which were German operations by their parachute and glider-borne troops to take chiefly the Belgian forts to enable the circumvention of the Maginot Line. And those lightning moves by hundreds of German paratroopers and glider-borne troops, Churchill had been massively impressed when he'd learned of that. He was convinced that airborne operations were going to be key to winning the Second World War. And he said to Clark, look, I want 5,000 at least airborne troops by the end of the year, not just your seaborne commandos, but I want airborne special forces as well. And so because they were officially known as special service troops, Clark inserted the word air between special service. And that's where the name special air service was born. So we're talking now summer, autumn, 1940. This is long before David Sterling formed the SAS officially in the North African desert. And lo and behold, hundreds of Special Air Service Brigade troops were trained for airborne operations. And the first ever airborne mission by that fledgling outfit was Operation Colossus. So in 1941, this raid by these airborne paratroopers deep into Italy, so deep behind the lines to blow up an aqueduct and deprive three million Italian souls of fresh drinking water. That was the first ever airborne raid by British paratroopers, and it was carried out by 11 SAS brigades. And they called it 11 SAS brigade because Clark wanted the enemy to think, well, if this is 11 SAS brigade, there must be 10 before it. So they must have thousands of these airborne troops. Again, it was all part of his very clever deception operations. Now, how do you get from there to the SAS as we know it in the Second World War and today? Well, Clark was then retasked and sent to North Africa to run deception operations in a North Africa campaign. And his mission was to convince the Italians, first and foremost, that there were British airborne troops in North Africa to put the fear of God into the Italians that they'd be attacked far behind the lines. And he did so by doing things like dropping dummy parachutists from aircraft where they knew the Italians would see them, and by sending individuals in, in 11 SAS Brigade uniform around all the bars in Cairo talking very openly and pretending to be drunk about how many paratroopers there were in North Africa, knowing that Italian spies would be listening. Anyhow, Sterling turned up in North Africa with the commandos, and he had already this fledgling idea in his mind that they needed to form some kind of deep desert raiding force to turn the tables of the war in North Africa. Sterling believed that those air bases in particular could be hit by operations going deep, deep, deep behind the line, circumventing the German-Italian defensives, and that could really, really change the fortunes of the operations in North Africa. And Sterling and Clark became friends. In fact, Sterling really sought Clark out because he was this very influential, very unconventional figure, a real lateral thinker, and they hit it off. And Sterling shared his idea with Clark, and Clark said, that's a wonderful idea, but don't forget the power of deception and the power of fear inculcated in the mind of the enemy. So rather than just coming up with a name for this unit, why don't you call it, after a unit that already exists, 11 Special Air Service, they carried out Operation Colossus, a raid of mixed fortunes, and then you'll take on that legacy and take on that name, and it will give body to all our lies here as well. So it was a win-win situation for both of them. And so Sterling embraced that idea, took on the Special Air Service name, and that's how the whole ethos was born. Now, Sterling's genius was in his initial concept and his idea of the kind of recruits he sought. He was very clear from the start that his ideal unit was four strong, just four individuals. Why four? Because, say you had a force of 80 strong men in the SAS, kind of numbers he was looking for to start off with. 
even with only 80 troops, if you could deploy them in four-man units, you could carry out 20 simultaneous raids for argument's sake deep behind the lines. And by the law of averages, some of those would be successful. So it was what you'd call a force multiplier. You could do an awful lot with a very small body of men and the enemy would have to send in thousands of troops to try to hunt them down. So that was part of his genius. He also knew that if you deployed your teams of raiders in very, very small units, one, they could hide and escape and evade much more easily behind the lines. And two, you would by necessity forge these incredibly tight and very real bonds of camaraderie with your fellow raiders because you had to because you were operating in such small units. And crucially, he said, I am seeking a very specific type of soldier. I don't want the soldier who just says, yes, sir. I need self-starters. I need independently minded individuals. I need lateral thinkers. And I need people who can operate, not regardless of rank, but at least recognising that merit comes before rank. What does that mean? That means if you've got four guys deployed on a mission, say to blow up an airfield, and three of the top-ranking individuals are killed or captured or injured and can't carry on, the least-ranking individual can still carry on with the mission because they all have a sense of the command and control and the objectives and what they're capable of. That was the kind of self-belief he wanted to inculcate into these fresh SAS recruits. And indeed, that was really the foundation stone upon which the SAS was built throughout the war. It was built upon those kind of very intelligent, self-starting independently minded individuals who could think and do the unthinkable and pull it off when everybody else to either side of him had become injured or put out of action. That's remarkable. I've always thought of the SAS as being the spearhead of military forces, but I've never put those layers of the political intentions, the psychological intentions, but also the fact that they are a strategic masterpiece as well and a force multiplier. But I suppose it makes perfect sense with Churchill as your greatest patron. You're there to bring some pride back to the British, to show there's some will in the fight, to build alliances and to show our allies we're there and to fill that role on the battlefield. When it came down to recruiting... What sort of thing would they have to do in terms of training? Because my grandfather didn't say much about his time during the war, but he said that his training with the Special Boat Service was pretty bloody horrendous. So it must have been pretty hard for the SAS. Yeah, so to give you an indication, when Sterling formed that first 80-strong unit in the North African desert, most of whom came from the Middle East Commando, which had seen operations in North Africa, but had been pretty much disbanded. So Sterling went with Maine and his other key top recruits and Owen McGonagall and others and went round all those commando bases and basically recruited from there. Anyway, he gathered them all at their base, and I say base in inverted commas, in the desert, and they looked around and said, well, there's nothing here. And he said, that's the whole point. There is no base here. You've got to go and steal one. They had to steal, beg, borrow and steal every single thing they needed. And by the end of 24 to 48 hours, they had stolen a base, including everything up to a grand piano for the mess. And they'd stolen it from the New Zealanders and the Australians and the British camps all around that area. And from then on, Sterling and the other top commanders and trainers challenged every new recruit to go out and steal a specific set of... So you'd be sent out to steal a chicken, some lady stockings, a red bicycle, and the mudguard of a Enfield motorbike, okay? You had to bring it back. And this is not trite. This is not japes. There was a very serious, very, very serious set of criteria behind this. First of all, when you were behind the lines, hunted, 
amongst a hostile population with no means of resupply, no means of reinforcement, possibly no means of escape or rescue, you had to be willing to do exactly that. Beg, borrow and steal whatever you needed to survive. And secondly, it weeded out those kind of individuals who for which this would not become second nature. That was absolutely key. You had to thrill to this idea that you could break all and every rule and get away with it. So that was absolutely key to this training. And then Jock Lewis, who was the legendary mastermind of SAS training in the very early days, who was sadly killed early on in operations, he inculcated this physical regime and he led by example. You had to be able to march for a day through the desert with one flask of water on your person and you were not allowed to drink during the heat of the day. All you were allowed to do was to take a swig from the flask, swill it around your mouth and spit it back into the bottle. Because his argument was that if you drink during the heat of the day, all your body does is sweats the liquid out and does you no good at all. And the way they trained and they checked individuals for this was at the end of a day's horrendous march, you'd have to hand your water bottle in and show that you still had a decent amount of water left in it. So you'd actually be doing the training inculcated. So the actual physical rigours were unbelievable. And then the training itself for airborne operations, you'll have seen the pictures and perhaps seen some of the film, but... Very quickly, they realised that because they were training for airborne insertions, which very, very few amongst the British military at all had perfected to date, they decided that one of the best ways to simulate the kind of landings from parachute was to drive through the desert, very flat gravel plains of certain parts of the desert, and to have these recruits jump off the back of the vehicles moving at 10, then 20, then 30 miles an hour and practice the parachute roll in doing so. So this was really, really, really making it up as they went along and going in at the hard end. And you had to be extremely tough and extremely resourceful and willing to countenance just about anything to get through that initial training process. And that's pretty much how it stayed throughout the war. There was no lessening of the strictures and the rigours throughout the whole of World War II. I mean, that's not just tough. That is insanely difficult. But it has to be, right? You have to get ready for some of the toughest missions that the war is going to throw at them. So let's dive straight into that because your new book, SAS Band of Brothers, really focuses on such an important mission, but with a shocking conclusion. What was Operation Gain? Yeah, so the SAS were recalled to the UK for the first time ever. So they'd always been headquartered overseas, North Africa, Italy, so there'd been almost a freewheeling, private, self-commanding operation. And then suddenly they're back in the UK and they're recalled to prepare for the D-Day operations. And the idea that is developed is that they will drop in deep behind enemy lines into France just after the D-Day landings, hours, days afterwards, to sabotage and stop Hitler and his commanders from rushing the heavy armour, the panzer divisions, to the D-Day beaches once they know where the landing is taking place. Now, this is absolutely crucial because if they can get those armoured divisions to the D-Day beaches, there's a very good chance they can drive the Allies back into the sea. And so the role of these small bands of highly motivated, fast-moving raiders is to attack the railways, the roads, the road convoys, carrying the armour and the ammunition towards the D-Day beaches to try to stop them in their tracks. An Operation Gain is one of those many dozens of operations across the length and breadth of France to sabotage those reinforcements. It takes place just to the south of Paris. The nearest drops to Paris are no more than two dozen kilometres away. So in a very, very heavily populated by the enemy, very hostile terrain, very difficult environment in which to operate. 
very, very difficult from what's gone before. Compare that to North Africa, wide open desert spaces, ease of movement, lots of chance to escape and evade from the enemy. You're moving into a very, very different kind of operating environment in France. Some of the local population will be friendly. Some of them will be on your side. You'll be linking up with resistance units to join forces and fight almost as co-joined units. But some of them will be neutral and some of them will be hostile. So it's a very challenging environment to drop into. And the first gain insertions take place literally just days after D-Day. And again, they're charged to hit specific railway lines, specific trains in some instances, and road convoys to stop the German armour. And the book, SS Band of Brothers, focuses down onto one 12-man patrol, which is part of Operation Gain, which is commanded by Captain Patrick Garstin, who was already a military cross winner from when he soldiered in the British Expeditionary Force before the evacuation from Dunkirk. So it tells their story specifically because what happens to them in terms of their eventual fate is really iconic for so many of the Gain and other codename Operation SAS missions in terms of what happens to those captured troops. There is a very dark fate awaiting any SAS man who's captured behind enemy lines in the summer of 1944. And of course, to give added poignancy to this, these men know what fate awaits them if they get captured. The SAS know enough by now about what's happened to some of their missing from previous operations to have briefed those men deploying into France, do not get captured. Because... If you do get captured, it's not going to end well for you. And actually, I was talking to one of the veterans, still surviving World War II veterans of the SAS, who was in the Summer 44 missions literally just a few days back, a chap called Alec Borry, and he said, look, we knew that if we were about to get captured, the one thing we had to do was get rid of our commando knives. Because that commando knife was like a calling card that you were not just some downed British air crew. You couldn't pose as anything else but a member of the commandos or the SAS and then you were slated for Nacht and Nebel treatment, the night and the fog to be disappeared without trace under Hitler's commando order, to be tortured and executed and disappeared so that your loved ones, your family, would never know your fate. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So was that about deterrence then? about trying to put the fear of God into the SAS. Because that is surely against the Geneva Convention. These aren't troops that are posing as civilians. They're behind enemy lines, but they're fully apparent as official, legitimate soldiers. You're absolutely right. So Captain Garstin led a 12-man patrol. They were all dressed in full British uniform, full SAS regalia. These were British soldiers deploying in British uniforms, and they should have been, if any were captured, they should have been afforded all the protections under the laws of war. This was about the fact that Hitler, by 1942, had decided, he got this idea into his head that special forces operations, whether it's commandos, SAS, or indeed special operations executives, so Churchill's Ministry for Ungentlemanly Warfare, so that's male or female agents, Hitler had decided these special operations were specifically targeted against him and his senior commanders and were a deliberate provocation and insult towards the Nazi cause and the Third Reich. Why had he decided that? Well, it's kind of hard to understand completely because, of course, the Germans carried out their own behind-the-lines operations. They had significant parachute-borne operations at the very early stage of the war and then in Crete and elsewhere. And indeed, the Nazis had gone as far as issuing legal edicts at the start of the war, saying behind-the-lines operations are perfectly legal. But Hitler had got it into his head that the British commando operations and Allied commando operations were specifically an insult towards the Reich and to him personally. Now, admittedly, there were a number of assassination missions. So you can think of the SOE mission to kill Reinhard Heydrich in Prague, which was successful, of course. He did die of his injuries. That was an SOE mission. Then, of course, the various missions to assassinate Rommel, so first in North Africa on Operation Flipper, and then, of course, in the summer of '44 in France. And those were SAS commando-led raids. So some of these operations were specifically designed to kill senior, senior figures in the Nazi regime and in the military hierarchy. And indeed, the SAS by now had a term for it. They called it cutting the head off the Nazi snake. And it was very deliberate. They knew that if you could ambush a patrol, but wait for all the truckloads of soldiers to pass and just shoot up the staff cars and kill all the officers inside them and let the rest of the patrol go by and then scoot as part of the shoot and scoot attack. If you could do that, it struck the fear of God into the enemy because the rank and file would think, well, if not even our senior commanders are safe from being hit by these raiders who come like cats and disappear in the night like cats, the Germans used to say. If even the most senior ranks aren't safe, what does that say for the rest of us? So yes, this was a deliberate policy, but it doesn't alter the fact that it was still legal. It's still within the rules of war. But Hitler had decided, and he'd issued his command order, this edict in 1942, this top-secret edict that could only be passed down from senior commanders by word of mouth, and which all copies were supposed to be destroyed and burnt. And the command order said, any British parachute troops captured behind the lines, whether in uniform or out of uniform, whether fighting or unarmed, are only to be kept alive enough if captured for long enough for the SS and Gestapo to interrogate them, and once their usefulness is extinguished then they are to be shot out of hand. It was a murder order. And that order had now been in place for two years. And the SAS High Command knew enough about it by now 
They didn't have a copy, but they'd picked up enough hints that it existed to warn those men deploying on Operation Gain and all the other behind-the-line missions, if you get caught, the very worst fate awaits you. So because of their guerrilla insurgent tactics, they are treated like terrorists. What happened to the Band of Brothers in your story? So they deploy into a drop zone just south of Paris in June 44, carry out an extraordinarily successful string of operations, blowing up a train and a score of ammo dumps. They get pulled out from a German Luftwaffe air base in one of the most remarkable rescue missions of the entire war by an incredibly skilled and very brave RAF aircrew flying a C-47 Dakota into an enemy air base under the enemy guns, snatch out Garstin's patrol. And then they're back in in the UK at the SAS headquarters and Colonel Blair Paddy Main, the commander of one SAS, and really the commander of the SAS throughout the most of the war after Sterling's capture in early 43, sits Garstan and his men down and says, look, you've escaped from that airbase. It was called Etampe Mondesir, just to the south of Paris. He said, you've escaped from that airbase. Not only did you escape from it, but just before escaping, you planted charges on some warplanes and ammo dumps and blew them up. You know that airbase better than anyone, and I need it destroyed. I'm sending you back in to blow it to smithereens. And so they were then parachuted back in to a drop zone very close to that airbase with a fresh supplies of ammunition and explosives, of course. And the plan was that they were to link up on the ground upon arrival at the drop zone with a local resistance group who would assist them in the operation. And that was all facilitated by, supposedly, the Special Operations Executive. Now, unfortunately, the SOE had been quite significantly penetrated by this time by the Gestapo based out of Paris. And the Gestapo commander there, Hans Kiefer, had perfected something he termed the Funkspiel, the radio game. And the radio game basically involved using captured SOE radios and code books and equipment and sometimes agents, if he could turn them, to play false radio messages back to London, to SOE headquarters, posing as if these SOE agents were still at large, still running their circuits, to call in more drops of ammunition, money, supplies and agents to try and capture more and more of the SOE airdrops. And Garstin's patrol, who was sent in under the auspices of SOE to link up with his local resistance unit, had been penetrated by one of those functional operations. So when they parachute from the four-engine Sterling converted bomber in July for the second operation, they are dropping directly into the hands of a Gestapo and SS ambush, completely unbeknown to them. Well, tell us then, Damien, how does it end? So there is a fierce and bloody firefight, as you can imagine. These men are not going to go quietly. They're surrounded, they're heavily outnumbered, but many of them fight to the last bullet and the last grenade. Garstan himself is taken captive by the enemy, held at gunpoint, and they order him to call the rest of his men in so that they can be captured too. Garstan refuses, makes a break for it. He's shot three times and gunned down. Lieutenant Vihay, his second in command, who hails from Mauritius, is also shot pretty much upon touchdown on the drop zone, takes one round to the spine and is immediately paralysed from the waist down. But because there's 12 men on a sterling, and however close you jump in the sky, you will still be strung out, laced across the heavens. The last three to jump don't land in the clearing, but they land in the woodland, and those three manage to get away, so three escape. And in a testimony to Vihay's immense courage and tenacity and heroism, two of his men who've landed in the forest, when they hear the firefight and they realise he's injured, Lieutenant Vihay, the second in command, 
They come to the edge of the clearing and they offer to try and rescue him. And Vihe says, no, you'll only end up getting killed or captured yourselves. Go into the forest, save yourselves, make for the Normandy landings. Leave us to do the best we can here. And so by the end of that night, seven men have been captured. One has been so badly injured that he pretty much dies upon arrival in Paris where they're taken. And the rest are all hospitalised or taken to the Avenue Foch, 84 Avenue Foch, the Gestapo headquarters in Paris, obviously for interrogation and questioning that becomes even more severe and unpleasant as the hours passed. I mean, I don't even need to ask this question. I assume they didn't give away any information and the Gestapo were not particularly happy with them. Half of the patrol hail from Ireland, north and south of the border. So all the Irishmen and Vachelik, the free French parachutists, were under Captain Garstan. They were tough, fighting Irish. There was no way any of those guys were going to break. Under Lieutenant Hay, you had Corporal Ginger Jones, one of the standout heroes of the patrol, a miner from Wigan, an extremely tough, seasoned veteran. He was one of the original SAS recruits from North Africa one of David Sterling's original. Jones took to swearing in his thick Wigan accent as colourfully as he could to all his jailers and guards because he knew the even those SS and Gestapo who could speak English couldn't understand his accent and didn't really know what he was saying. To break these men's spirit proved impossible. And because of that, the treatment became more and more unpleasant and horrific as time went on. But eventually Kiefer, the commander, realised that the usefulness of these commandos, these captured SAS men, was at an end. Under the commando order, obviously of which he was aware of and which he was in seat of, he could only keep them alive for long enough to get information out of them. So he sent word to Berlin, to headquarters, saying, look, I need guidance on what I should do with these men now that I think I can't use them anymore. And the word that came back eventually from pretty much from Hitler himself was they are to be dressed as civilians driven to a patch of remote French woodland and shot out of hand. Now, the very fact that they were to be stripped of their British uniform and dressed as Frenchmen in civilian clothes indicated the fact that despite all the attempts by Hitler's high command and by those lawyers that he retained in his high command to dress the commando order up in some kind of legal language and give it some legal justification, they knew at heart this order was illegal and that this was murder, plain and simple. So here they are, playing games with international law, trying to make it look like these are spies who have landed in a clandestine manner when actually they're British troops fulfilling a mission. I assume that this isn't a happy end to this story. So I've got to ask, how do we know what happened here? So in one of the most extraordinary episodes of the whole story, as told in the book, and of course, without these two escapes, the story could never have been told, because how would we know? So the seven surviving men, two of whom are very badly injured, Captain Garstan first and foremost, and Garstin has not, incidentally, had his wounds treated in any way, shape or form under captivity. Indeed, he and Vihe have been subjected to really brutal interrogations in the hospital itself by the Gestapo. They are driven to this patch of French woodland, and Kiefer has provided this cover story to justify the change into civilian clothes. He said, look, all that's going to happen is we're going to do a prisoner exchange with some German prisoners held by the British. So we're driving you to Geneva so that exchange can take place. And to get you across the border, we need you dressed in civilian clothes, not in British uniform. Now, Garstin, being such an upstanding individual, 
believes Kiefer. He believes he's a man of his word. He can't believe that a foremost martial nation like Germany and an officer of such a foremost martial nation can actually have concocted such a diabolical lie. It's only when they get to that patch of woodland and they see the execution squad lined up with their weapons, these SS and Gestapo soldiers in their full uniform, just as dawn is breaking and a church nearby is striking five o'clock, that Garstan realises they're about to be shot. And he turns to his men and says, my God, they're really going to shoot us. And at that moment, he says, I will stand and take the fire. You, all of you, try and make a break for it. And he says that because he knows he is too badly injured to try to get away. So he's going to be the focus of the enemy fire in the hope of buying the rest of the men some time. And that's exactly what happens as the so-called death sentence is read out by the SS chief of the firing squad. When it comes to the words, you will be shot, there's an animal cry of rage and several figures break away, two of whom, Serge Vachelik and Corporal Ginger Jones, manage to escape. And the way they do so, it's kind of the greatest irony of all. Jones is dressed in civilian clothes, as are all of them. His shoes are too big and they have no shoelaces. And as he runs to get away from the fire, he trips over his own shoes and falls flat on the ground and the enemy believe they've shot him. So Jones lies there playing dead. Meanwhile, that's brought Vachelik just enough time to run off into the trees and all the enemy fearing what will happen in Berlin when it's found one of these men that Hitler's ordered, executed, escaped. The enemy charge after Vachelik and Jones lies there playing dead until all the noise of the pursuit has died away. And then he gets to his feet, dashes into the woodland and buries himself in a patch of leaves to hide. And so by the time the enemy return, not having captured Vachelik, who's managed to get away, and incidentally he manages to get away partly because of the rigours of their SAS training, he's managed to climb this massive hedge, which his hunters could not get over. And that's how he's managed to shake them off. So by the time the SS and Gestapo gunmen return to that clearing, there are now two missing bodies and two of the SAS men have got away. And it's really fascinating when you read the accounts of that escape, both men say, of course, you know, there's a natural human instinct to survive. We all have it in us. And that was driving them on. But you know what was also driving them on? It was the burning desire to make sure someone survived so they could go and tell the truth about what had happened and about who the killers were so that they could try and see that justice was done after the war. Wow, Damien, that is remarkable. Do they manage to make it back to HQ? Can they tell the story of what happened and get some sort of justice for these men? Do you know, the most extraordinary thing is Vachelik and Jones then link up with the local French resistance. They soldier with them for several weeks. But when the American forces eventually come and relieve Brestless, the town where they base themselves, the first thing that Vachelik and Jones do is they get in the mayor's car and they drive back the 20 kilometres or so to the very site of their executions, would-be executions. They find it. They retrieve some bullet cases. They see all the shot-up marks on the trees. And then they go to the local chateau, the Chateau de Palaisis Fontaine, and they find the mass grave in which their comrades have been buried. And that's the start of a war crimes hunting operation, which lasts from that period, so autumn 44, all the way through to the summer of 1947, when those of the killers who are still alive, who've not died during the war, are finally brought to trial. Oh, wow. So the SAS role, because I always thought it came to an end with Churchill falling from power because he was of course their greatest supporter and the funding gets dropped and they're meant to disband 
but you're telling me that they continue in some form to get revenge and hunt down Nazis? Absolutely, yeah. So in a very little known part of SAS history is that in May 1945, the SAS formally found their SAS war crimes investigation team. And it's charged to go and investigate all those individuals who have disappeared, all their comrades who've disappeared as they suspect under the commando order. And it's commanded by a Major Eric Bill Barkworth, who was this absolutely towering figure of the SAS throughout the war and the post-war. Barkworth was an intelligence officer, the intelligence officer of one SAS and two SAS throughout the war. He's charged by Lieutenant Colonel Maine and Colonel Brian Franks, who's now the commander of two SAS, to go into formerly occupied France and then into Germany as it's liberated to start to track down the disappeared. And Barkworth heads off in a couple of jeeps and a couple of British army trucks with a couple of dozen men to find the SAS war crimes investigation team. And they end up basing themselves in Gaggenau in the Villa Degler, which they've expropriated from a Nazi bigwig who's now been arrested and is being himself investigated. In the basement of the Villa Degler, they set up their makeshift cells and they begin their Nazi hunting operations. And then, of course, everything's going perfectly fine. Barkworth is the hunter and the interrogator par excellence. And his second in command, Fred Dusty Rhodes, this SAS sergeant, absolutely driven individual, a brilliant hunter and arrester of men. They are proving extremely successful already in what they're doing. And then, of course, in October 45, the SAS is disbanded. Never particularly popular with elements of the high command and the British establishment. No longer seen as necessary. Now we are no longer at war. And the SAS is thoroughly disbanded and it's ordered to destroy all records that the unit ever existed. Well, some individuals are not having any of that. And so Maine and Colonel Brian Franks and Churchill gather. Churchill's now voted out of power, of course. And Churchill says the one thing that will not die is the SAS war crimes investigation team. And bear in mind, it's also a Trojan horse. Yes, it's there to do vital work. And it does that vital work through to 1948. But it's also the Trojan horse because those men who continue that work, Barkworth and his fellows, and indeed they recruit more individuals even after the SAS is officially disbanded. They continue their war crimes hunting operations, hiding in plain sight. They are dressed in full SAS uniform, wearing the wind dagger cap badge throughout those three years. And that helps keep the regiment alive. It's as if the SAS never really died. And by the time they're reformed as 23 and 21 territorial units under the Artist Rifles Regiment, the continuity is there because of the war crimes hunting operations. And how do they practically keep this operation going? Well, they've got the Villa Degler, they've got their old World War II jeeps. And from the war office, there is this black budget massage to fund their operations, which the war office in chaos after the war has no idea where it's going. And from the roof of a building in Eaton Square in London, there's a secret radio transmitter which sends and receives their orders to and from the field. And Colonel Brian Franks, the commander of two SAS, has gone back now to his job managing the Hyde Park Hotel, now the Mandarin Oriental in Hyde Park. And there's a suite in that hotel which becomes the secret SS war crimes investigation team headquarters. And that's how this operation is continued from disbandment in October 1945 all the way through to the summer of 1948. And it is one of the most successful war crimes hunting operations ever because these men are absolutely driven. And not only are they absolutely driven, they decide very quickly that they will carry out their war crimes hunting operations 
in exactly the same spirit that they fought through the war. No holds barred. They break every rule that's necessary to make sure those suspects are brought into their custody. So I'll just give you an example. When you go from one area of occupation to another, you're supposed to get travel permits and permissions before you do so. If the SAS war crimes investigation team does that, or the secret hunters, as they became known, then there's a very good chance a warning will get passed quietly to the man thereafter. And so what they would do instead is they get in their jeeps, completely unannounced with no permission, drive along the back road, circumvent all the checkpoints and arrive in the middle of the night to snatch the individual they wanted to arrest and drag him back to the Villa Degla. But all of that being said, Barkuth was absolutely resolute. He said, there will be no violence used against any of our suspects. There will be no interrogation techniques used which involve violence or torture whatsoever. We will abide by the letter of the law when we carry out these investigations because we need to turn up in what are basically British courts of law, although they were based in Wuppertal in Germany, but they were still overseen by British and allied judges. We need to turn up in these courts of law and see that we have an absolutely cast iron case to ensure that proper justice is done. And this cannot be an example of Gestapo SS style summary justice. This must be the sense of British fair play personified. And that's what Barkworth did throughout those three years of Nazi hunting operations. Fluent German speaker, spoke German to such a good standard that other Germans believed he was German himself. And he treated those people he dragged into the cells with respect and with dignity. And it's really fascinating when you read the statements that every single one of his suspects brought into those cells eventually gives. They read like confessions. Barkworth had this amazing way of making these hardened Gestapo and SS war criminals talk and confess all. Well, you can't leave us hanging. Did they do it? Did these SAS secret hunters bring those perpetrators who had executed their friends? Did they bring them to justice? They did indeed. And the story behind how they do so is, again, one of the most extraordinary, remarkable of the war. And bear in mind, when the killers stand trial, in the dock, giving the most powerful evidence of all, are Corporal Serge Vachelik and Corporal Ginger Jones, the SAS men who escaped from that firing squad and who should never have been there if the executions had gone to plan. And of course, their evidence proves absolutely damning and justice is seen to be done. Damien, thank you so much. You've done it again. Your books are excellent. and I can see that there's so many more stories entwined in this and many more books to come. Where can people buy and read this book? It's available now, all good bookshops, the ones that are open, of course. It's available in supermarkets, all good supermarkets. And of course, you can always get it online at the usual outlets. And thank you. It's been a fantastic interview. And it's always good to talk to somebody who knows the subject as well as you do. Well, Damien, thank you so much. Get out there and buy SAS Band of Brothers now. Brilliant. Thank you very much. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian-developed, 
And it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.